Amen. Well, as is our custom, let's remain standing and turn to God's Word. Uh, We sang earlier from Psalm 104. We're going to pick up in the reading of that psalm again. Uh, A psalm about the glory of God's providence and very much a basis upon which we can uh, have confidence in Him. We'll read Psalm 104, 21 to the end of the psalm and then Luke 12, 22 to 34. Psalm 104, we'll begin at verse 21. Hear the word of the Lord. The young lions roar after their prey and seek for food from God. When the sun rises, they gather together and lie down in their dens. Man goes out to his work and to his labor until evening. O Lord, how manifold are your works. In wisdom you have made them all. The earth is full of your possessions. This great and wide sea in which are innumerable teeming things, living things, both small and great. There the ships sail about. There is that Leviathan which you have made to play there. These all wait for you, that you may give them their food in due season. What you give them they gather in. You open your hand, they are filled with good. You hide your face and they are troubled. You take away their breath, they die and return to the dust. You send forth your spirit, they are created, and you renew the face of the earth. May the glory of the Lord endure forever. May the Lord rejoice in his works. He looks on the earth and it trembles. He touches the hills and they smoke. I will sing to the Lord as long as I live. I will sing praise to my God while I have my being. May my meditation be sweet to him. I will be glad in the Lord. And may sinners be consumed from the earth and the wicked be no more. Bless the Lord, O my soul. Praise the Lord. I'll turn again to the Gospel of Luke. Luke chapter 12. Picking up in verse 22. Luke 12 verse 22. So we hit about the halfway point in this Gospel. Then Jesus said to his disciples, Therefore I say to you, do not worry about your life. What you will eat, nor about the body, what you will put on. Life is more than food, and the body is more than clothing. Consider the ravens, for they neither sow nor reap, which have neither storehouses nor barn, and God feeds them. Of how much more value are you than the birds? And which of you, by worrying, can add one cubit to his stature? If you then are not able to do the least... Why are you anxious for the rest? Consider the lilies, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin, and yet I say to you, even Solomon, in all his glory, was not arrayed like one of these. If then God so clothes the grass, which today is in the field and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, how much more will he clothe you, O you of little faith? And do you not seek what you should eat or what you should drink? Nor have an anxious mind. For all these things the nations of the world seek after, and your Father knows that you need these things. But seek the kingdom of God, and all these things shall be added to you. Do not fear, little flock, for it is your Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. Sell what you have and give alms. Provide yourselves money bags which do not grow old, a treasure in the heavens that does not fail, where no thief approaches nor moth destroys. For where your treasure is, There your heart will be also. May God bless the reading of his word to us tonight. Amen. Please be seated. 
And let's pray together as we look to him. Father in heaven, we're reminded in this passage tonight of what a privilege it is to address you by that name. For you have cared for your people in a way that we will spend eternity searching out. We do pray that as we gaze upon the beauty of you, our Lord, tonight, as we reflect upon the good purposes you have for your children, shown preeminently in the death of Christ on our behalf and his resurrection for our justification, that you would give us a firm confidence and a childlike faith, unwavering, that grows up into eternal life. Please, Father, bless us far beyond what we deserve. Bless the preaching of your word by your spirit. Exalt Christ. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Some of you may know that the Mayo Clinic is uh, somewhat of a world-renowned medical institution. It is known for its care about many things. Perhaps you might even say everything that might ail the human body. So there's something of a definitive um, authority when it comes to medical conditions. Well, I was looking about the medical definition of anxiety. And here is what the Mayo Clinic website says. It says, if you feel like you're worrying too much and it's interfering with your work, relationships, or other parts of your life, if your worry or fear or anxiety is upsetting to you and difficult to control, if you feel depressed and have trouble with alcohol or drug use, or have any other mental health concerns along with anxiety, solution, you should see your doctor. Now, what I don't want to do is to discount the reality of great burdens that can rest upon the soul. Uh, God made us body-soul creatures. There's an interplay, isn't there? Uh, the Proverbs even say that the spirit of a man will sustain him in sickness, but who can bear a broken spirit? There are uh, interplays between uh, the spiritual and the physical. Uh, there might even be physical symptoms that flow from this reality. You can have headaches, you can have uh, nausea, you can have all kinds of things that flow from stress, anxiety, or worry, whatever it may be. Sometimes it is physically induced, but we can be honest together. Most of the time, it's actually a spiritual condition, isn't it? As we look at these passages tonight, we need to remember that uh, the Lord Jesus Christ has far better counsel for us if we are gripped by anxiety, if we are dominated and governed and are often uh, capitulating to worry. And his advice to us tonight, and in fact, it's not advice, it's actually a decree, it's not go see your doctor. You know what his counsel is tonight? It's to repent. Actually, we are called to repent of the sin of worry. This chapter, as we've been talking about for some weeks, is full of the Lord Jesus Christ calling his followers, what we have summarized it as, is to thoroughgoing Godward discipleship. And as he was working through this, the Lord, as only he was able to do, he knew what was in man. He is leaving no stone unturned, if you will, no part of the soul 
left unaddressed. And you can see how he's dealing with the hearts of people. He's dealing with the problems of the fear of man. He's dealing with our relationships to materialism and things in this past chapter. And now he's dealing with that inward struggle of the soul with respect to whatever it may be that's behind what we call our anxiety. And tonight, what we're looking at is that the thoroughgoing Godward disciple is both forbidden and freed from a life of worry. A Christian, friends, is forbidden to worry. Now, you might think that's a hard command. Well, difficulty of a command does not detract from its legitimacy. We are forbidden from a life of worry, but we are also freed from it. What I want us to look at as we think about these things tonight uh, is that this sermon, as you, we're going to see, this sermon touches upon the realm of what we commonly called, uh, call emotions. Now, usually that's addressed by asking this question that you may be more or less comfortable with. How do you feel about that? Uh, I would often be rebuked for asking that question when I was in seminary. Don't ask me how I feel. Ask me what I think. But the fact is we do feel things certain times. We have emotions. And I want you to understand this very important principle. Humans were made with emotions. Godly Christians, as we are still humans, are not called to be without emotions. However, we are redeemed and freed from bondage to them. They must be subject to us. Let me illustrate this to you a little bit before I get in more to our text. We can refer to anger as an emotion. We can feel anger or rage or wrath at a certain situation. But the Bible does not simply say, well, if you have anger, go see your doctor. The Bible says, be angry, but do not sin. There is a moral responsibility with respect to it. We can feel tremendous sadness. We can experience great depths of grief. But what does the Bible teach us? The Bible says, do not grieve as those who have no hope. There is a tempering of it. We are not slaves or subjects to our emotion. Even when we talk about cares and anxiety, there's a portion of it, just as grief, just as anger, there's a legitimate place for it. Paul even said in 2 Corinthians eleven twenty-eight that in addition to all the things that he had suffered for the church, in addition to them, he feels daily the care or the burden We could call that, it's a different word than what's used here, but it's related. We could call that a godly anxiety for the churches. And here's why I begin here. The spirit of God sanctifies his people. This does not legitimize sinful emotions, but it calls saved people filled with the spirit to conform even the secret things of the heart to the word of God. In this sermon about worry, as I've titled it, a needless nemesis, it is your enemy. But it's also an enemy that need not plague your life. This is a sermon that is directed to all disciples, male and female, old and young. We're going to spend about 80% of the time on our first uh, point here, and then probably hopefully 20% of the time, if we take how we get there. On the second, we're going to look at two things tonight as we think about how the thoroughgoing Godward disciple is both forbidden and freed from a life of worry. Very simply, what we're going to look at is first that Jesus' disciples must not worry. And then secondly, 
that Jesus' disciples need not worry. We must not, and we need not. The must not is the moral prohibition. The need not is that spiritual liberty that Jesus Christ brings us into by his blood and by the indwelling spirit. So we think about Jesus' disciples must not worry. I want you to see a few things. First of all, I want you to look at the text and notice in several different places that there is a clear, a clear prohibition. In verse 22, Jesus says, therefore I say to you, this is related very closely, logically, organically to what follows. He says, do not worry about your life. If you skip down to verse 29, do not seek what you should eat or what you should drink, nor have an anxious mind. And then in verse 32, do not fear. Why do I emphasize this? Because these words of Jesus, his commandments, his prohibitions with respect to worry and fear and seeking the things that dominate the seeking impulse of unbelieving pagans, these things come to us tonight with as much authority and as wide a comprehensive reach as those commandments of God written on tablets of stone. God telling us tonight, God in the flesh, do not worry, bears equal authority and scope as him commanding you, do not murder, do not steal, do not commit adultery. Now, those sins of murder and adultery and theft might be more obvious to us. But we know that Jesus deals with the heart because out of the heart, the mouth speaks and the hands act. And so the first thing I want you to recognize here is there is a clear and authoritative prohibition, a forbidding to worry that comes to us with divine authority. Now, this language, we need to clarify here because we need to know what we're talking about, what we're not talking about. In the older versions, when Jesus opens up this discourse, it says to take no thought. Um, do not spend your time thinking about these things. Well, I remember a story from my church history courses years ago where a certain monk was chided by his abbot. Now, children, you uh, hopefully none of you have ever really experienced life under an abbot. An abbot is kind of like the boss of a monastery. And there was a monk who had decided because the next day was coming, he took a pile of beans. If you've ever tried to eat raw beans, very unpleasant. And what he did is he did what any sensible person does. You soak them in water so that the next day they'd be a little softer, a little bit easier to work with. And he was chided for doing this because he was taking a thought for tomorrow, violating this passage. Now, that is not what we're talking about. What the Lord Jesus Christ is telling us here is he is not forbidding possessions, but a preoccupation with them. He is not forbidding work, in order to store up and do certain things to provide for ourselves, he is forbidding worry. God in the flesh, the Lord Jesus Christ, is not forbidding duty, but he is forbidding disordered affections and disordered priorities. There is a clear prohibition against sinful anxiety. Now, I want you to see, secondly, uh, five compelling arguments, and this is where we'll spend the bulk of our time, five arguments that the Lord Jesus puts before his listeners. He sets five planks, if you will, for them to stand upon that gives them a much more stable foundation than the sifting, sinking sand of worldly preoccupation. Five compelling arguments. First, he tells them 
Essentially, why are you forbidden from worrying? You're forbidden from worrying because, number one, you have a soul. Look at verse 23. Life is more than food, and the body is more than clothing. If you forgot, if you go back to chapter 12, verse 20, this is the very thing that the fool had overlooked. You fool, God says, this night your soul is required of you. He had spent all of his time gathering up these things for the sake of his body to cover himself, to fill his belly, and to warm his uh, flesh. And yet what the Lord Jesus is saying here is, listen, your life is to be taken up with so many more things than what you fill your stomach with and what you clothe your nakedness with. In other words, he's telling us here, you are to live in a higher standard than animals. That's what animals care about. Animals spend their days foraging for food. We sang and we read from Psalm 104, and yet even they receive these things at God's good pleasure. If your, body, if your life is more than food, and if your body is to be caring about more than just clothing, what are those things? Friends, what you need to hear from the Lord Jesus Christ tonight is that your life is to be directed after the glory of God. We say this all the time. It can become perhaps trite, but I know that many of you, perhaps the extent of your catechism memory ends at number one. I think our congregation's a little bit better. But you do need to remember that that wonderful first question and answer is so paradigmatic for how to live as a Christian. The chief end of man, the highest purpose for which you exist, is to glorify God and truly to enjoy him. That is what begins to get us in a right direction of caring about more than this present age, the things that we can taste, see, touch, and feel. Our end, our goal, our call is higher. Argument number one, you have a soul. Don't neglect it. That soul is what gives you the capacity meaningfully and even eternally to relate and commune with God. A second very compelling argument that Jesus gives to his listeners you are more important than birds. I say these are compelling, but they're also very simple, aren't they? If you just take a minute and think about what he's saying, he says, think about the ravens. Verse 24, they neither sow nor reap. They neither have storehouses or barns. That's what the fool, remember, spent his life doing. He says, the birds don't do this. The ravens don't go out there. They don't have a builder's union. Uh, they don't have their nest barns. They just go out and God feeds them. He says, of how much more value are you than the birds? Now, you know, the Bible somewhat frequently refers to ravens, sparrows too, but ravens in particular, they have a, a rich history in relationship to God's providence. Psalm 147, as uh, very closely connected thematically to Psalm 104, the psalmist there reflects on this and he says that Jehovah the Lord gives to the beasts its food and to the young ravens that cry. Those little ravens cry out, you know, their parents aren't particularly uh, well-cultured creatures. They're black, they're ugly, they're loud. And yet, as the little ravens cry out, God cares for them. You know, it was to Job, that man in the depths of his misery, that the Lord God came to him in a whirlwind. And you know, among the other things like ostriches and mountain goats, he sets ravens before suffering Job. And he says to Job, one of the 77 questions that he asks Job in chapters 38 to 42, he says, Job, who provides food for the raven when its young ones cry to God and wander about for the lack of food? And you know, ravens even had a special job for the prophet Elijah. Do you remember that for a time, 
These ravens even fed that prophet until that brook dried up. The point here that Jesus is bringing to us tonight is that these birds are cared for. We ought to consider this. We ought to uh, prepare, of course. We ought to live as creatures, noble, thinking about the future. But we need to do so with those ravens in mind that God cares for as insignificant and even unseemly as they might appear to us. You're more important than ravens. A third very compelling argument that Jesus gives to us tonight is that you are entirely incapable of changing anything by your worry. Look at the next text. Verse 25, which of you by worrying can add one cubit to his stature? If you then are not able to do the least, why are you anxious for the rest? Now there's debate over what this cubit and stature really means. Uh, A cubit is 18 inches uh, and by worrying uh, to grow 18 inches, some of you might want to grow that much, but it would be certainly a gigantic feat. I think the principle here is a cubit is just a very basic uh, measuring unit, a smaller measuring unit. And here's the principle. You can't add to your physical stature the smallest unit of measurement, a standard unit of measurement. You cannot add to the stature of your life. Think about it this way, by your worrying, you will not increase yourself by inches or by seconds. There's nothing that you can do about it. And if you can't do those smallest things, why do you worry about these much more vastly significant things? Let God deal with it. Let God handle it. You know what worrying is like? I wonder if any of you, I know some of you, have gotten stuck in the mud before in a vehicle. And you know the first rule of getting stuck in the mud is don't stop. But some of you have stopped. And then what you do is you begin revving that engine. And what happens? As you rev that engine, you are expending energy. And you are spinning tires and you're making noises. But you know all you're doing is digging yourself deeper and deeper and deeper into a rut. And you're not going anywhere. That is exactly what worry does. It cannot increase you in the least. You're utterly incapable of making progress. Jesus says, if this is true, if you can't do the smallest thing, why do you worry about the larger things? A fourth, very compelling argument that Jesus gives to us is that you are more significant. Now he goes not to the world of creatures, but to the world of agriculture. He says, you're more significant than flowers. Consider, he says, the lilies. Common all uh, covered over the, the mountains, or I'm sorry, the hills throughout Palestine. He says, look at them. Think about them, how they grow. Do you see them straining themselves? Do you see them working and gathering in uh, growth hormones or gathering up fertilizer? Do you see them uh, striving and sweating and fretting over their growth? He says, no. All they do is they, they don't toil, they don't spin. And yet Solomon, the richest king and the highest point of the people of God's history, Solomon Perhaps I'm overstating it this way. Solomon looked like a beggar compared to those flowers. You know, I remember four years ago, it was actually four years ago that the world lost its mind. Began going crazy over a disease and all of the government shutting everything down. And many of you and many of us were gripped with fear and uncertainty, wondering what in the world is happening. And I remember in that very beautiful March, going out into my 
yard and looking at the azaleas, a particular kind became my favorite that year, these white ones with these beautiful pink and purple streaks in them and purple edges, and I looked at those flowers. If you have looked at those things, they are staggering in their intricacy, aren't they? They don't do anything. God puts them together. God paints those colors. God weaves them together. They don't have looms. They don't have uh, needles. They don't have uh, sewing classes. God simply does it. And he says they're here today, and this is, this is one of the grievous parts of spring. The azaleas last for, what, two weeks? They're here today. They're gone tomorrow. And yet Solomon, that great king, nothing in comparison. Friends, we are of greater significance, greater lasting ability than these flowers. You are more significant than them, Jesus says. Finally, quite simply, he simply says, and I'm glossing it in this way, you're not a pagan. Unless you are a pagan tonight or living like a pagan, Jesus here says, you're not to live as the pagans do. Verse 29, verse 30. Do not seek what you should eat, what you should drink. Now seek, just so you know, seek doesn't mean we should never think about them or never provide for them. Remember, if you don't provide for the needs of your household, you're worse than an unbeliever. Okay, what he's saying is striving in a fretting manner over these things. He says, don't seek them, nor have an anxious mind. All these things the nations of the world seek after your father knows that you need them. The stress that characterizes the world from Wall Street to Franklin Springs Street ought not to be present in the life of a Christian. It must not be. J.C. Ryle in his unique and capable fashion simply says this here about this text. Christ bids us remember that a Christian man should be ashamed of being as anxious as the heathen. Friends, you might think of yourself and say, well, I'm, I'm just a worrier. He's just a worrier. She's just a worrier. Friends, that is akin to saying he's just a sinner. God calls us to such better things. We need not, we must not rather, focus in and be anxious and sin in this way. Now, I want to open up a little bit and apply this um, and look, secondly, we've, or thirdly rather, we looked at the clear prohibition. We looked at some compelling argumentation that Jesus gives to us, five different things. But I want us to think for a few minutes about four common objects of worry. Here, uh, applying it to our lives, our hearts a little bit more pointedly, what are some things that we do spend our time spinning the wheels of the soul over and getting ourselves deeper into ruts of worldliness? What is it that we're anxious about? Well, we're anxious, aren't we, about money. I wonder if you worry about money, fret about money, complain about money. Friends, we need to have budgets. God knows that you have bills. We know that there's a time coming when you're not going to be able to work and a righteous man stores up goods for his children and yet we can make idols of retirement and we can, if you depend upon the uh, portfolio that you have, the stock market, you're living on very shaky ground. You can live your life fretting and worrying about inflation and hyperinflation and stagflation and deflation and any kind of flation. Friends, we can make money an object of worry. And if that's the case, you have made, object, you have made money an object of your worship. And you need to repent. And you need to turn away from that. The Lord tells us in the Psalms, I have been young and now I'm old. 
Yet I have not seen the righteous forsaken, nor his descendants begging for bread. It is the smallest thing. It is the smallest thing for God to provide funds, means that we need. You know, we've been praying recently for uh, my friend. Many of you have not met him, Calvin Gallagher. He had surgery Monday, had a lung taken out. Uh, the surgery, insofar as lung removal can be successful, it was successful. But he had to have that surgery in Toronto, and he lives in California. He had to go up there. He doesn't have Canadian health insurance. He had to pay for everything out of cash. And you know, he put out an email about two weeks ago, needed thousands and thousands and thousands and thousands of dollars. You know, his wife sent an email out about three days ago and says, hey, we need people to stop giving money. We don't need any more. Now, he'll need more later, I'm sure, but isn't that a remarkable, can't you remember stories like that? I've told you the story about my dear brother, Zeki, when the church in Eritrea began to be bitterly persecuted and, and he got called up once and he was very nervous about it. And two men said, we want to meet with you. And he was very concerned, very cautious, but they met with him and they simply had come up from another nation and just gave thousands of dollars to the widows and the people who had been separated. They, they were just providing out of nowhere. Friends, it is the smallest thing for God to provide. Don't let money be an object of your worry. A second object common for worry is the future. The future. <laughs> or we could just say the unknown. Uh, or we could just say they, right? What are they doing? What are the schemes? What's going to be the election interference this year? What kind of persecution might come? There is a gigantic cottage industry. Lots of money to be made, stirring up fear, fomenting fear, profiting off of fear. There's money to be made. Pay this person. He'll tell you what's going to happen in the stock market and pay that person. He'll tell you every conspiracy under the sun and who's, who done it. All of these things happen all the time. And here's the thing, friends. When you live dreading the future, what you are robbing from is contentment and joy in the present and a life of faithfulness to God. When you have spent all your years worrying and nothing happens, you can think of two problems. Something can happen and that's bad or nothing could happen. So if you spend all of your years worrying and nothing happens, you have totally wasted your time and spiritual energy. But if you spend your years worrying about something bad happens and it does happen, then you have wasted the time of prosperity. Better yet, how about we live by faith and put away worry? We can worry about money. We can worry about the future. Oh, we can worry thirdly about opinions. What others think. What do they think about me? What does the world think? Is the world watching? You know what the antidote is to the fear of man which brings a snare? It's to fear God. To live with a clear conscience before God. Now it is easy-ish for me to say what I'm about to say. I don't live in corporate America. A friend of mine sent me one of these ridiculous uh, uh, diversity, inclusion, and equity die um, videos that he had to suffer through as part of his job this past week. And the pressure in those situations is uh, the woke mob, the cancel culture, being, being fired for standing against these kinds of things. But, you know, one of the reasons that I think God has given our society over to such utter insanity is that we have collectively exchanged regarding the opinion of God as highest for the opinions of men. And as a nation... 
we're starting to live and learn that seeking the opinions of men is to be enslaved to subjective tyranny. It changes every single day. Better yet, live with a clear conscience before the God of glory who sees all things. A fourth and our final common object of worry, by no means exhaustive, you can give some thought this coming week to the things that are plaguing your heart, idols that you've set up in your heart. A common object of worry is children. Now, if you're a parent or a grandparent here this evening, you know that there is no one and there is nothing about whom you care more. You care about their physical well-being. You care about their future occupation. You want them to have relational stability. You want them to have spiritual vibrancy. All of those things are good desires. But I can promise you, this testimony has never been shared in the history of the church. I'm a Christian because my mother worried me into the kingdom. I'm a Christian because my father worried me into the gospel. No, you're worrying, you're fretting, you're fuming, will not issue in the grace of regeneration. You know, we can think about that great uh, example, Monica, who wept over her son, that notable son. And yes, did she feel pangs of anxiety and worry? Certainly she did, but you know what she is known for? is taking those arrows of worry and pointing them heavenward and turning them into supplications. And her son Augustine literally changed the world as she sought the Lord's face. We can't worry our children into the kingdom of God. These are some common objects of worry. I want to close out this first section. I told you 80% of our time, maybe 90% here. Just briefly, what is the heart of worry? What is the heart of worry? Jesus gets to the very nerve in verse 28. He says, as he refers to the field or the flowers of the field being here tomorrow, gone or here today, gone tomorrow, how much more will he clothe you? O you of little faith. And if you remember our text earlier, this heart of the worrier is actually the exact same as the heart of the fool. If you look back at chapter 12, verses 18 and 19, we pointed out there that when the fool was pulling down his barns, building more in his presumption, he's saying, I will do this. I will pull down barns. I will build greater ones. I will store up goods. I will have everything I need. I, 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 the heart of that is unbelief. And so friends, you might think I'm not like that rich fool. Well, you are. If you're a worrying fool, God calls us to put it to death. It's unbelief that drives anxiety, that drives worry. And Jesus is so kind here in pointing out and putting his finger on the nerve of something that causes not only so much sin, but so much, so much misery in the Christian life, in life in general. If you are gripped with worry, anxiety, it is a living misery. Here are the remedies that we need to think about tonight if you are guilty of the sin of worry. You simply need to repent. You need to repent. You need to turn from it, confess it to God, and replace that worry, as we're going to see in a moment, with trust. You need to replace the uh, discontent that grows out of, flows from a heart of anxiety with the contentment that God promises to give all those who come to the Lord Jesus Christ. 
Perhaps you need to change your standards and stop expecting greater and larger things and learn to be grateful for what God has given you. Here's what Paul says should be the baseline level of our standard for contentment, food and covering. If we have food and covering, food and raiment, food and clothing, with these, we shall be content. Does it not strike you as remarkable that Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory, he said foxes have holes, birds have nests, the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. Was any man more content than the Lord Jesus Christ, who lived at his Father's good pleasure, trusted him in every way? Friends, Jesus' disciples must not worry. I want to close rather briefly, probably not going to do justice with some of these great texts, but rather briefly, Jesus' disciples need not worry. We've looked at the prohibition, that moral requirement, but I want you to see the blessing and the way that we can avoid such heart-destroying, life-destroying worry. We need not worry. Why not? Because first of the God I'm sorry, because of who God has revealed himself to be. We've pulled out from this passage a number of arguments and things, but I want to pull out also the the kind of God who reveals himself in this passage. What is it that will be a balm and a protection in your heart to keep you from worrying? Number one, God has revealed himself to be sovereign. Sovereign, absolute authority and ability, free from external control. He rules over the animal kingdom, the agricultural world. He rules over the angelic realm. He rules over nations. He rules over the sea. He rules over the stars and over the sun. Friends, he rules over you. He is a God of complete and total sovereignty. Generosity is the second thing. God has revealed himself as a God of remarkable generosity. Paul writes in 1 Timothy, Command those who are rich in this present age not to be haughty, nor to trust in uncertain riches, but in the living God who gives us richly all things to enjoy. This is the kind of God that he is. He's given seed to the sower, bread to the eater, wine to make our hearts glad, oil to make our face shine. You look at verse 31. He says this, seek the kingdom of God and all these things shall be added to you. What are these things? The things are the things you're worrying about and seeking about. You seek God's kingdom. He says, put these first things first. I will provide All of these things. This God is sovereign. He is generous. Friends, thirdly, he is wise. He's wise. The God who knows how to care for ravens. Have you ever tried to catch a raven? God governs the ravens. The God who knows how to spin together flowers. You can't paint flowers. Melanie can. But none of you can paint flowers that beautiful. God makes them by the billions throughout the world. He knows what you need. More difficultly, he knows what you don't need. He knows when you need it, doesn't he? He knows and he does all things well. And a fourth thing that he reveals himself to be, the sovereign, generous, wise father of his beloved children. You look at the parallel passage in Matthew chapter 6. Again and again, that section on the Sermon on the Mount is punctuated by this word, Father, 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 Father. And here it's just twice, but you see it in verse 30 and in verse 32. Your Father knows what you need. Do not fear, little flock. It's your Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. He says earlier in chapter 11, you who being evil know how to give good things to your children. How much more your Father in heaven give the spirit to those who ask. 
Seek God for God's sake. And God promises to care for us because this is the kind of God he's revealed himself to be. We need not worry because of who he is and we need not worry secondly and finally because of what God calls us to do. Instead of spinning the wheels of the soul, we could actually gain some traction and pursue the things that God calls us to pursue. And he calls us first of all to to seek the kingdom. Seek the kingdom. Seek actively, earnestly, energetically his reign and his rule in your heart and in your life. Seek his will, not your own. Seek his glory, not your comfort. You know, Jay Gresson Machen is a brilliant man. I do wonder if he'd like the OPC today. But one of the things he points out in his book, Christianity and Liberalism, brilliant point. He said that our Lord does command us to seek first the kingdom. But he lived in a day when the kingdom was conflated with earthly goals and worldly liberal politics. Here's what he says. Our Lord said, but if you see, our Lord said to seek the kingdom, but here's what Machen says. But if you seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, in order that all those other things may be added to you, you'll miss both those things and the kingdom. Isn't that right? Seek the kingdom for Christ's sake, for the kingdom's sake. And when we seek the kingdom, you can see, secondly, you will receive the kingdom. God has promised it. Fear not, little flock. Now, I've read a lot of stories to my children. I've read a lot of stories that include fighting and that struggle for freedom and for victory. And you know what I've never read in all the stories is a flock of sheep going to battle. It never happens. It is completely contrary to their nature, to their design. There's nothing more ironic than the Lord of glory saying, fear not flock, not only just a flock, little flock, you're going to get the kingdom. The meek shall inherit the earth. This is the promise of God. This is to be a great article of faith. This kingdom will be given by the grace of the God who is sovereign, gracious, generous, wise, He says, thirdly and finally, that we need not worry because we can occupy ourselves with seeking the kingdom, receiving the kingdom, and building that kingdom. Look at verses 33 to the end. He says, sell what you have, give. Find yourselves money bags which don't grow old, a treasure in the heavens that does not fall, where no thief approaches nor moth destroys, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. You know, the heart of worry, or I should say the instinct of worry is I need to get, get, get more of what I want so I can be happy. And interestingly, Jesus says, no, if you want to build the kingdom, you need to give, give, give to Christ. Give your life, give yourself, give those things that God has given you, give the things the nations seek after, and all those other things will be added to you. You invest it into glory and God promises that the return on that investment you will enjoy for all of eternity. Friends, I'm going to close here. Perhaps need to come back and revisit that great verse in verse 32. Maybe we'll do that another time, but I just want to close in this way. We can pontificate about the highest and most, the, the finest and most difficult points of theology. We can talk about uh, the eternality of God and wrap our minds around that. We can talk about the incomprehensibility of God. We can talk about his sovereignty. We can, we can study his decrees. We can talk about the hypostatic union. We can talk about blood atonement. We can talk about all of these things. But you know what? All of the highest theology comes into this particular application. Do you worry? That's actually what drives 
the ability to look life in the face, to look suffering in the face, to look sorrows in the face, to deal with all of these objects commonly associated with worry. And we can say, because I know all those things, here's what it looks like. I'm not worried. It's very simple, simply to say, trust the Lord, which is the great closing application. It's very easy to say that. Harder also though, isn't it? To do it. Friends, do trust God to give to you what he has promised. Do trust him for the forgiveness of sins. Trust him for the provision of all of your needs. Put away your worry and replace that worry with a childlike faith. For in this, God is most highly honored and we will find everlasting comfort. Amen. Father in heaven, we pray you'd give us ears to hear. We all need these things. Particularly, a rebuke to our worry. Lord, whether it's over money or the future, the unknown, the opinions of others, the condition of our children, what you're going to do, Lord, whatever it may be, we pray that you would surround our souls with songs of deliverance and teach us truly to trust in you. Lord, we pray that when our hearts are overwhelmed within us and as we cry out to you from the ends of the earth, Father, please, would you lead us to the rock that is higher than we are, that we would gain that uh, divine perspective and divine stability. We would trust you as you have promised to give us the kingdom. Lord, make us more like Christ in this way. We pray in his name. Amen.